What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 275 of Two Amazon Sellers and a Microphone, brought to you by Solozo. And uh, today, I think we're going to go all over the place, Chris. Everywhere. <laughs> we're going to be talking. I mean, it's going to be Amazon. It could be real estate. It could be uh, expanding into other marketplaces, entrepreneurship. We're going all over the place. Uh, and joining us to talk about uh, his journey and all the things he's working on is Mike Begg from AMZ Advisors. What's up, Mike? How are you? I'm doing well, Dustin. Chris, thank you guys for having me here. Uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I'll try to keep it on track and not jump too much all over the place. Oh, we have but trouble lots there? of things we can talk about. So. You guys well, yeah, we were, but I think we're good now. If you can hear us, that's weird. I can hear you. It just went all black on your screens for me, but all good uh, now. So. Was, you're, you're good. Well, we'll, we'll figure it out as we go, but it was cutting in and out on our end, but we'll see how it uh, proceeds. But yeah, Mike, there's a, uh, you know, we were talking before, uh, before we went live. I mean, you got your, uh, you got your hands in a oh, lot of things oh. right now. So I, I mean, We'll try to cram as much into this uh, conversation as we can. It's, it's it's pretty exciting, but why don't we start? Just give everybody. Uh, I mean, you were on with us back in February of 2022, so it's been a while. So, uh, for anybody who doesn't know you, hasn't seen you speak or anywhere that you're 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 around a lot, uh, but for anybody who hasn't uh, seen you, uh, why don't you give a little brief background into your journey? What what you were doing before e-commerce? What you're doing? why you started AMZ Advisors and just a little background, go for it. Of course, yeah. Uh, well, right now I'm CEO of AMZ Advisors, but it's been a long, long journey to get to this point. Uh, I started out of school working in consulting for Deloitte and I really didn't enjoy consulting at all. Uh, it's kind of ironic that I got back into it later, but that's a different story. Uh, from there, once I realized I wanted something different, I went into real estate development. I worked at Sears. Uh, we did a lot of different work there, spinning off real estate trusts, you know, pretty much asset stripping the company to avoid it going bankrupt, mm. uh, store closures, redevelopments. Uh, and that is kind of when I saw the opportunity in e-commerce. There were some transactions I was working on where I noticed that FedEx, Amazon, uh, other logistics companies were literally buying malls. And I was like, well, that's weird. You know, why, why does Amazon want a mall? And what I realized is that they were turning the malls into logistics centers. So they were turning them into the FBA centers that we have today. Uh, and a lot of smaller you know, locations that are uh, not as populous as the malls were performing really bad. So it was interesting to me. I was like, okay. Uh, from there, I kind of started looking at Amazon more started doing Kindle publishing just to put some stuff out there, getting royalties that way. Uh, you know, it was my first experience in e-commerce really. And then um, started retail arbitrage. I'm originally from Connecticut. I don't live there anymore, but uh, I literally, myself, my, my partners, my friends, we, we hit every Walmart, every Target in the tri-state <laughs> area, buying up everything we could, throwing it on Amazon, made some money that way, and then invested that into private label products. And we had an art brand, an art supply brand. And uh, our main competitor is obviously Crayola. And this was like 2015, 2014, 2015. And we were kicking Crayola's ass in some categories. And we were like, you know, this is weird. Like these companies don't know what they're doing. 
and that's kind of where the idea from the agency came from. And since 2015, uh, we've been, you know, growing, uh, helping other brands grow on the platform. We're up to uh, about 55 employees now in the U.S. or so in the U.S. company side. Uh, we have a global side as well, helping companies exp expand to other marketplaces. We have another 10 employees there. Um, so it's been a journey. It's been a long road to get here, but it's been fun. It's been exciting and, you know, definitely lots of learning opportunities on the way. What's something that, you know, you've learned differently from being like a private label seller and then starting an agency? I'm sure that has like its own, you know, hurdles you have to go over. What What's something there that you learned about? I think when I look at, uh, and I'll talk about it more from the progression of the platform side, but when I look at how it was to be a private label seller seven, eight years ago, I mean, we had awesome branding. I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty sweet for the art supply brand, um, but branding didn't matter. Like no one cared about brand back then. And now the platform has shifted completely to where everything is about brand. Uh, all the features that Amazon's rolling out are all brand focused. So the biggest thing that I've had to learn as an agency owner is how do I build a brand? It's not my brand. I mean, I'm, I do that you know, through marketing and stuff, but I'm building other people's brands. And these are companies that have good products that may, you know, have traditionally had a retail footprint or, uh, you know, sell through their Shopify store, whatever it may be. But now they need to be on Amazon competing with all these other brands. So, you know, the level of competition is higher. How do you differentiate yourself? How do you stand out more? And that's where a lot of the conversations happen now on the agency side is how do I take this brand that has some brand recognition and make it, you know, known nationwide? Uh, on the Amazon platform. And I think that's yeah. one of the most exciting things. Yeah, that's good. And when brands come to you, what what are you seeing like the most common uh, uh, like trouble they're having? You know, this this could be advice for you know smaller brands right now. Like when you see a brand come to you, what are some things that they need to be working on in order to, you know, compete with those big brands like Crayola, like you mentioned? I think the biggest, the biggest thing they're doing wrong is they have the wrong mindset about how to approach the platform. I think most brands or most brand owners, and this is common, especially in companies that are founder led, uh, is that why am I not making money on Amazon? You know, why is it not profitable? Why am I not, you know, why is my margin this instead of this? I'm making this much on other platforms. Why should I invest here? And it's the wrong mindset. Amazon, I mean, we all know this, it's the biggest brand discovery. It's the biggest, biggest brand awareness platform that there is out there. Amazon is never going to be your most profitable sales channel like ever. <laughs> it's all about getting your brand out there, getting discovered. So I think a lot of companies that are have an executive team in place that maybe are not founder led have already understand that they, they come from that background. A lot of companies have, you know, private equity investors or other investors. So they understand what's required to grow a brand and that Amazon is just one piece within the broader e-commerce ecosystem for them. The founder led companies are still kind of, you know, how do I get the most bang for my buck? Why am I not making money? And, and I think that's the biggest, the biggest uh, challenge that we see from a lot of brands. And we hear it frequently with the founder led companies we work with. It takes a lot of convincing, a lot of education to show them why it's worth investing in the platform, why it's worth, you know, not making as much money to get the brand out there, or get it known. And you know, that's, right. that's just the way we have to approach it all the time. We have these conversations all the time. Uh, both Chris and I with, with clients, with, you know, with uh, others, other businesses that are, you know, m mostly concerned about their advertising expense yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. Um, 
but it's always the same thing. You know, oh, look at the fees Amazon's charging me. This is ridiculous. But when you break it down and you look at the numbers and you look at the sales velocity possibility and you look at the missed opportunity of people who are not shopping in the retail stores that you're in that are not, you know, going to your D to C site. The, I mean, the opportunity, it's right. You're right. It's, it's the creating that mindset that you need to be there. There's, yeah. there's a whole audience of people there that aren't seeing your product elsewhere. Um, but it brought me back to the first thing you said, cause I was, I, I didn't know about the, uh, the art company that you had started and competing with Crayola, but I feel like that sums up for anybody who's out there looking to, to launch a brand or start a brand, the power of Amazon. It's you can you can easily compete with big name brands on Amazon in their category. It's it's amazing. It's never been. I mean, think about twenty years ago, someone trying to get on the shelves at Walmart. They had no chance of competing with a Crayola. They were never going to steal that shelf space. But you could launch on Amazon and be the listing right next to Crayola with a better with a better positioning, better, better look, better graphics, better packaging, better branding, better pricing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And I think you brought up two good points there. First is that, you know, the Amazon platform, it's really difficult to measure the sales lift that you get from the brand awareness on Amazon onto your other channels. But I can tell you it exists. It happens. Uh, we see it all the time where, you know, Amazon starts cranking and then, Shopify starts going or Walmart starts going or, or some other platform starts going. I mean, it's going to be different for every brand, depending where their customer, who their audience is, where they shop, things like that. But from the disruptor side, uh, it's definitely more challenging now to be a disruptor brand because a lot of these big brands that have the advertising dollars that have the agencies working for them are investing in it. It doesn't mean it's not possible, but I think as a seller, the challenge now is to really get into that I don't know, I call it like guerrilla warfare mindset of like, what can I do? What's the most efficient way I can leverage the money I have to compete with them? And a lot of times it's social media, it's TikTok, it's uh, link building, it's PR, it's other things that might have an impact at a lower cost in the long term from building up sales. You're not going to come in and compete day one with Crayola or you know, Johnson and Johnson or whoever but you can do enough over time to continue to steal that market share from them. And I think that's, I, I think that's the biggest difference for disruptor brands is like, yeah, six years ago, seven years ago, you could have came in as a disruptor and screwed up the entire market for brands. But now it's more about how do I just steal a little bit from them? How do I steal a little bit from this competitor and how do I keep growing over time? You mentioned, um, I agree 100%. It is definitely, I mean, that's why I think, you know, like you mentioned, if you are passionate about the brand that you're creating and you become the face of the brand or you're using influencers or you're creating a tribe, that's how you're that's how you're breaking in and competing, slicing off up just a part of that niche. Um, but something occurred to me when you were talking earlier, Chris was asking about, you know, pain points for a lot of clients coming in. And you're you're clearly working with a lot of these uh, founder led companies. Talk about if they're not implementing an Amazon strategy, what's happening with everybody else who's reselling their products and misrepresenting their brand on the platform? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most common challenges that a lot of these, and again, it depends on the founder, it depends on their background, but 
a lot of founders that have the experience either working for a large company in, in you know, the CPG space or, or things like that that are used to retail distribution models rush into those retail distribution models because that's what they know versus you know e-commerce, which is kind of unknown. And that's exactly where you start seeing all the resellers popping up because they don't have a map agreement in place or they don't have channel exclusivity um, or, or some other way to try to control the e-commerce channels for themselves. And that's where you see the resellers popping up. That's where if you see it's a continuous battle trying to take them down. If you don't have a unified strategy there or even a way to just manage you know, reporting fake products, uh, merging fake listings, uh, dealing with all of those challenges, you're just leaking market share. And I think it's one of the interesting things that I see. I, I, I didn't mention it before, but I live in Mexico. Uh, we have a lot of our team here in Mexico and I, I've been here for about six years, but it's one of the interesting things I see about e-commerce uh, or Amazon in Mexico specifically is that there are, I, I just bought a Logitech camera. I was telling you, I was getting frustrated with my computer before, before we started, <laughs> but I bought a Logitech camera and I went and searched Logitech and there's 10 listings for the same exact product. And I'm like, come on guys, like really no one's paying attention here. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of brands. It still happens in the US. If you're not focused on Amazon, if you don't have the strategy around it on how I'm gonna manage this going forward, you see that it's just Mexico is a microcosm of that problem because no one's paying attention there. So the well, Mexico, uh, go, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. No, uh, yeah, I'm going to put gears on you. So you better go ahead and get in there and get going. Can go no, I, was just, I was just curious because I mean, I'm one of those people. I I do arbitrage as well. Uh, you mentioned that's how you started uh, yeah. after after Kindle. You are after KDP. You went into uh, arbitrage. I think it's a great way to learn, mm -hmm. uh, but. So from your experience, it sounds like the uh, arbitrage market in Mexico is booming right now. It is, but it is it has a lot of challenges. Uh, what I would say is that a majority of the arbitrage that you see are Mexicans along the border that are crossing over into the U.S., buying product <laughs> and bringing it back um, and then selling it on Amazon. So I would that's be right there all day. Oh, yeah. oh, that would be for sure. <laughs> Everyone along the border there. is just loving things right now. It's so easy <laughs> for them. But. All right, cool. All right, I'll so I wanted to I wanted to just talk about general entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, you you're a seller. Some of these agencies out here, you know, they just start an agency because they see the dollar signs and they don't really they try to figure out Amazon as they start this agency. But you've been a seller and Dustin and I are sellers, so we're all three have been sellers. But like just the overall entrepreneurship of like start an agency, like building a team, figuring out how to do all this. Like, what's that process like? What's that been like? How do you, how are you finding people? How are you training them? Like what, yeah. what, what have you learned there? Uh, we've learned a lot. I mean, fortunately, but when we started, we were, you know, there's a, there's a concept called blue ocean. We were in a blue ocean. Uh, there weren't many Amazon agencies out there. I think the big ones out there were like Orca Pacific, Buy Box. Uh, those were like, our, um, bobsled, those were like our main competitors, another one channel 26. I don't even know if they still exist or not, but, um, those were like the main competitors out there. The market's changed. I mean, now there's everyone that worked at Amazon in any capacity thinks they can launch an agency and just say like, oh yeah, I'll figure this out. So, uh, I think that's very common for people to try to do now, but they, they necessarily don't have the experience uh, on actually growing a brand. So. For us, it was awesome starting from the roots. I mean, myself, I have two partners. We were the three co-founders and we were all sellers. 
and we bootstrapped the business, but we also bootstrapped all the brands we were working with in that we were in the day-to-day figuring out what worked, figuring out what didn't work, testing things for brands, helping brands grow, doing sales, doing operations, uh, trying to hire freelancers. And I think that's the advantage that we had is that we learned everything hands-on and that's helped us so much more going forward when we hire, when we hear of a problem in the business, we already have a good frame of reference because of all the work that we've previously done on Amazon. So I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, as we've grown as a business, the biggest thing that we've learned is, or as an agency, I should say, is that freelancers are only going to get you so far. Uh, it's really tough to manage the quality that freelancers are putting out. It's obviously impossible to manage their schedule. It's the whole definition of a freelancer. They work when they want. Uh, and that makes it really tough to manage client relationships. And I see a lot of agencies now, they're still leveraging freelancers in some capacity. A lot of them are hiring VAs for full-time work. I think that's a better approach, but as you get to a certain point, you need to start hiring employees. And for us, it was about 2018. So it was about three years in business when we realized that we needed to start hiring employees and being here in Mexico already, you know, it just kind of presented a good opportunity for us to find really qualified talent here in Mexico. We had some of the best e-commerce talent in Mexico at the time working for us. And a lot of them have left to go on to do their own things, their own projects, which, you know, obviously it's an employee, they're not going to stay forever, but it really helped establish us in Mexico and in Latin America in general, as one of the leading e-commerce companies here. So it was really easy for us to, to attract a lot of qualified marketing uh, talent or a lot of qualified retail talent or brand management talent that had this experience or this knowledge on how to grow a brand and you know start hiring them and coming with us. So I think the way that we approached things when we were initially starting hiring was more from the approach of what are the tasks that I don't want to do or what are the most time consuming things that I'm doing that are preventing me from doing other things and then hiring that way. And now we're at a point in the business where it's more about how do I hire the most qualified person to help me run whatever process or whatever department or whatever team it is so that I can trust them to build out the processes versus I need to build out the processes and have someone else do it for me. So I think that's the biggest shift uh, as you're growing as an agency or as you're growing in any business. I mean, you got to have people you trust. You got to have people that are talented. Nope. And you've got to be able to keep those people. And I think that's one, those are all areas that we've been really successful in. So now you Why? mentioned Mexico, what's yeah. going on in Mexico with, uh, with the growth of Amazon. We touched base on it, you know, almost a year and a half ago, but I'm sure it's lots changed since then. How's, how's Amazon looking down there? What's the perception of Amazon? Uh, you know, are, are people learning it more? Are they grasping it better? You see it growing marketplace. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot, a lot of changes uh, since we last spoke. Um, there's been a few conferences that have started down here uh, of local e-commerce sellers. I think one of the guys that's doing a lot of brand awareness or a lot of the education piece is Algo Mas and uh, I'm blanking on their names, Patricio Tellez and his, I think it's his brother, his cousin. I can't think of the other one. Um, they're helping get a lot of, uh, you know, Mexican and Latin American sellers or Spanish speaking sellers, understanding how the platform works, getting more interested in, you know, how do I, how do I build a brand? How do I launch a product? Um, so from the education piece, there's a lot more people interested in it. There's a lot more people learning about it. 
through our website, you know, we obviously work in multiple languages. We work in English, Spanish, and Portuguese, uh, among others. Those are the main ones. We get people reaching out all the time about in Spanish, in Portuguese, uh, from, you know, wherever in Latin America looking for help. So we're seeing more and more interest in it, uh, which is a great, great sign. I think that means it's only going to be more beneficial for consumers here, uh, but also, you know, just for these business owners in Latin America that are launching brands, it's going to continue to help them. Uh, with Mexico and the platform itself, Amazon is now the biggest uh, platform in Mexico. Uh, it's still close between Mercado Libre and Amazon, but Amazon is the biggest. When we look at a logistics standpoint, though, uh, or like FBA fulfillment, <clears throat> Mercado Libre's fulfillment ne network in Mexico is way bigger than Amazon. So you kind of have interesting dynamics on what's going on here. There's a lot of competition. Uh, there's a lot more people coming into the platform and into the marketplace. So it's growing. Uh, I mean, I, last year, 2021, Mexico was number two for the fastest growing. 2022, I haven't seen the numbers yet but I expect it's up there again. Um, you know, in my building, there's literally like 30, 40 Amazon boxes being delivered a day. So it's continuing to grow and there's a lot of good things happening in Mexico, even, even from outside of an e-commerce perspective, the peso has gotten a lot stronger compared to the dollar uh, since the beginning of 20 or since the end of 2020, the peso has gotten 25% stronger. Um, there's a lot more tech companies that have come down to Mexico. So there's a lot more people making money. There's a growing middle class. There's a lot of good things happening, even from a uh, demographic and you know geopolitical standpoint that are making Amazon uh, or making e-commerce in Mexico grow a lot faster. Good. Why, good. why did you end up in Mexico? You said you're from Connecticut. What... What caused that that transit? Not, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different reasons. The first one I always say is that I hate the cold. Um, <laughs> that that's usually a good one. Uh, Connecticut's great during the summer, but like the you know, six months out of the year, it's flat and it's cold and rainy and snowy and you know, it's just not my thing. Uh, versus where I live in Mexico, uh, about. 10 months out of the year, it's 85 degrees plus and sunny. And so, you know, that's one thing. The other thing was obviously starting the company, uh, trying to give it the biggest ramp to, to launch. Uh, we wanted to save money. We wanted to be as efficient as possible. Um, and when I say we, myself and my partners. So we came down to Mexico. Uh, we were living in Cancun area for a while, for, for about six months. Uh, and then from there, I left, went to Guadalajara. I ended up meeting my, well, she became my girlfriend. Now she's my wife uh, who lives here in Guadalajara. She's Mexican. And ever since then, ever since 2017, I, I've been here. So that's kind of the story of how I ended up here. Um, there's a few different factors there, but uh, the reason I am staying is of course my wife. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a great story. Um, one just another thing that popped up while you were talking is because uh, I want to transition towards talking about brands moving to Latin America and those yeah, marketplaces. Yeah. Um, but are there any unique um, like hurdles to get over in that market? Because I know I tried and this is a long time ago. I was I had uh, I'm going to go into multiple marketplaces and I tried to list some of my products um, in Mexico. Yeah. And there was an issue with it being produced in China. Yes. They 
they wouldn't I, at that point. I don't know what the what it is now, but it looked like they weren't allowing it. I'm assuming to prop up their own manufacturing industry in Mexico. But what is what are some hurdles? There are a lot of hurdles. Uh, it's almost to the, to the point of where do I start? Um, <laughs> is that still right though about chi Chinese made products? There's there's tariffs on Chinese made products, and, it, and that was probably a NAFTA thing. Uh, now it's there's the new trade agreement, which is US MCA, uh, which has some different dynamics, but it still has uh, similar similar challenges for bringing products from China. Uh, you really need. For example, I bring, uh, I produce a product here uh, in Mexico, but I bring the packaging from China, and you know, I got hit with uh, like three thousand dollar tariff that I was not expecting um, because my customs broker didn't tell me it was coming. So um, that's a different story. But when we look at getting into to Mexico as a seller, the options right now are really uh, a few different ways, but they're all the same solution. It's NARF. Uh, global selling from uh, Mercado Libre, and then there's a company called Knock Knock. Uh, they're essentially all the same thing. They're sending from the U.S. to Mexico or the U.S. to wherever, and they're all taking advantage of loopholes. So the only reason they exist is because there's a certain loophole that says if you have a certain type of product under a certain price point, you can send it from the U.S. without problems. And because of uh, some aspects of the trade agreements, uh, some products don't have taxes, other products do have taxes. So as a consumer, it's kind of all, uh, for lack of a better term, a mess. Um, like if I want to go buy a product, especially electronics products, that, that's one area that's, that's in big demand in Latin America. I, if I want to buy a monitor, uh, those, that's a product I actually buy pretty frequently for my team. Uh, I have to bring it from the U.S. or or buy it here locally, but coming from the US, I'm gonna pay tariffs on the product coming in. There's gonna be a customs uh, tariff. I'm gonna pay value add tax, which is 16%. So in some products, you end up paying almost 80% of the product coming in as consumer. So from the consumer standpoint, like why would I want that? Like, yes, I need the product. I'm gonna, I might have to buy it because I don't have another option. But like, it pisses me off as a consumer down here. Like I have to pay all this stuff to bring the products in. And that's the biggest knock that I have against NARF and, and Mercado, Libre, uh, Mercado Libre's global selling program is that it's not considering what the end consumer is feeling or, or the pain that they have to deal with to get the product. Um, one, the other solution to this is obviously starting a company in Mexico to actually bring the products in. Uh, you can't import products to Mexico without a tax ID. You can't get a tax ID without having a business in Mexico. You can't get a business in Mexico without having a partner in Mexico. So there's a variety of different hurdles and challenges that come through that. You could work with a 3PL to import the product, but then legally they become the owner of record. So you are essentially signing away your inventory. Like that comes down to a whole trust issue on whether you trust these people to actually do it. And then from there, you can't even get into FBA. You can't even get into Mercado Full, which is Mercado Libre's fulfillment program without having a tax ID. So as a seller, the only option you really have are these programs that are screwing over the consumers. And it's one of the challenges that 
And I think one of the reasons why most sellers have not focused on Latin America or on Mexico, I mean, I just talked about Mexico, but Brazil has its even, even more nightmares than Mexico does about getting products in. So yeah, I mean, it, it's tough right now. There are some solutions, like I said, starting a business. Uh, we've kind of been working on something, which I think helps solve a lot of companies solve these problems. Um, but yeah, you, your options are pretty limited. How's, yeah, how's Brazil? Oh, go go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, you brought up Brazil. Are those the two in Latin America right now, Mexico and Brazil? Are there more on the way? Yeah. So uh, from an Amazon standpoint, we have uh, Colombia, um, Brazil. I believe there's an Argentina platform as well and a Ch uh, Chile platform. But the two biggest platforms by far are Brazil and Mexico for Overall e-commerce sales in Latin America, Brazil is about 50% and Mexico is about 20%. So when you are talking about expanding to, to Latin America in general, those are the, the two biggest ones to focus on. Beyond that, it's Colombia, uh, Chile, and then I think Argentina. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the way we always recommend to brands that are interested in it. It's like, all right, let's focus on Mexico because of ease. And then let's focus on Brazil because... You know, that's the big nut to crack. It, it does like uh, the e-commerce market in Brazil, at least from 2021, was about $250 billion. So uh, that's bigger than Amazon and pretty much all of Europe. Uh, and yeah, so if you can figure out how to get in there, there's a lot of reward for the brands that do. So there's a lot of hurdles in the way for sellers like Dustin and I to even experiment trying to list products in Mexico. You obviously saw that need and created go advance, uh, yeah. advance. Uh, tell us about that. What's that all about? So uh, all the hurdles that I highlighted with Mexico, um, we figured out how can we leverage our experience? How can we leverage our knowledge and how can we leverage our position here in Mexico to help brands succeed? So what we did was we created a distribution company. Uh, essentially what we're doing is we have a business here in Mexico. We have the tax ID, plus we have an agency already. So we combine the best of both worlds to bring brands in and then sell the products for them. So we were an e-commerce enablement, enablement platform for Mexico and Latin America. Um, essentially you have a product, uh, we'll import it for you. We'll put it in our warehouse. We'll sell it for you. We'll handle all the marketing. And then we just take uh, you know a fee from each sale that we get. So we'll manage all the platforms: uh, Mercado Libre, Amazon, uh, Copal, Liverpool, Walmart. And the end game here is for us to eventually help these brands get into retail distribution by building relationships with Walmart, with Costco, and all the other big retailers down here in Mexico. So you're buying the product, or are you just importing and take a cut of it of each sale? Yeah, it depends on uh, the preference for each brand, but uh, essentially that's that's what the model is and that's what we're doing. Um, okay. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing some pretty good success. Uh, we yeah. brought in a few brands that, it, it, like I, the exact problem I mentioned is that you have 10 different logic tech cameras and people are arbitraging it. So you have, you know, maybe it costs $50 in the US, but it costs $150 here in Mexico. <clears throat> There's massive price gaps between what these arbitragers are selling it for and what the true value in the U.S. is. So what we're doing is we're actually helping capture that difference by giving the consumer the best price experience, removing all the hurdles of importing the products and all the taxes that come from that, 
helping the product uh, get more sales because the price point is actually more competitive with what the market is willing to pay. And in general, we're driving more revenue for these brands in Mexico. I mean, we have plenty of clients that do NARF as well on the AMZ side. Yeah. And, you know, they get a couple sales a month. Sure. We have brands that we bring over to go Avance and they start doing 20, 30 sales a day. So it, it's really that big of a difference is that when people see the, in Mexico, when you're shopping on the Amazon Mexico platform, it says importacion, it's coming from NARF. It says import, import on the product. All of my friends down here are like, if it says importacion, I just don't even buy it. Like, that's that's a no red point. flag. That's, yeah, that's like, yeah, they're not even going to buy it. It's, it's like, there's no point. It's going to take forever to get here. I'm going to pay a lot for it. And I'm probably overpaying what it's worth. So wow, it, it's so, the programs take advantage of the loopholes, but literally it benefits no one. So I don't know why it, so many sellers continue to focus on those programs. Yeah. It's like the buy, it's like uh, the prime button in the United States. Like people will just, if they, if they don't see prime, if they think it's coming from somewhere else and they get to pay shipping for it, there's, they're moving on. Exactly. What are some categories that are hot? Like, what are some good categories down in Mexico and Latin America that, you know, not every category is going to be the best one. I'm like, yeah. But there, there's probably some good ones. What are some good ones you're seeing? There are some very good categories. Uh, I would say that um, we work closely with Mercado Libre uh, on actually expanding brands to, to their platforms. And the overwhelming thing that we hear from them is that electronics is the number one focus. I mean, they've sent us lists of thousands of products they're trying to get on the platform. 85% of them are electronics products. Wow. Uh, there's a massive demand for electronics in Latin America because, and this kind of goes back to what you said before, just, uh, Dustin, um, Latin American companies have a lot of manufacturing restrictions on Chinese electronics. So Chinese electronics can't come into these countries. So U.S. electronics or electronic brands manufactured outside of China have a really big competitive advantage in Latin America for those reasons. Uh, the other big categories that we see being real successful are supplements, uh, beauty, you know, cosmetics, that type of stuff. Those have their own challenges because they're all regulated, but that's also something that we help these brands navigate is how do you get the approvals for all the regulators to actually sell uh the products. So it's interesting. I mean, those are the biggest categories by far uh, that people want. Uh, you know, in some instances, apparel is also big, but like we, we don't really mess around with apparel because dealing with all the SKUs is a nightmare. Um, but those three categories, I would say, are the, probably the biggest opportunities in Latin America for brands. I would imagine manufacturing is just booming down there. Like I would, if I, you know, I would start a manufacturing plant just because how easy it is or not easy, how hard it is to get products in to the Mexican and Latin American marketplaces. You could just start a, a manufacturing facility and, and you're there. Right. Am I, is that too easy or no? Uh, I mean, I guess in theory, but again, you're talking about starting a business to start a manufacturing and like, that's yeah. not, it's not easy. You can work with contract manufacturers to get your products produced. But again, at the end of the day, you still need that tax ID to pretty much do anything down here. Mm -hmm. I, again, we didn't even mention it actually. Uh, if you don't have a tax ID and you sell on the Amazon platform in Mexico through like uh, a 3PL, like an FBM model, uh, Amazon holds 20% of the sale as income tax. So you're also taking a hit there as a seller. So like 
you need a tax ID. There's no way around it. You either need a business or you need a distributor uh, to help you sell the products. It's, there's no other option. Um, manufacturing is going crazy though. Uh, I would say Mexico has a lot of challenges for manufacturers. If they have never worked with a Mexican manufacturer, it is not like China. I highly recommend working with uh, contract manufacturers and I have some good friends that do that. Um, that if anyone's interested in, I can always introduce them. Um, but having someone that has experience dealing with Mexicans and dealing with Mexican manufacturing is extremely important because the term mañana does not actually mean tomorrow. It means when I get to it. And if you don't know how to do that, <laughs> it's going to be a problem. Um, but yeah, manufacturing is going crazy. Uh, the Chinese are actually starting to invest a lot of money here in manufacturing because there's a big uh, you know, gap in the market and because of us chinese sentiment uh so there's a lot of interesting things happening in mexico that are, are really making e-commerce opportunity here huge well you you mentioned um another hurdle was you have to have um, a mexican business partner yes correct yeah so is there a market now exploding of people who are looking uh to partner uh with american businesses and just be that ghost partner there are. I mean, there's lawyers that do that. But again, it comes down to it comes down to trust. And I think that's always the hard thing is that this person is your representative in the country. They represent the company in the country and they are responsible for making decisions for the company uh, in the country. So from a proxy standpoint, yes, they're your proxy. In theory, they should be making the decisions that are what you want. But in practicality, you have no control over what the decisions are actually being made. So if unless you have someone that you really trust or that you really know here, it's hard to sign from my standpoint. It, it's really hard to sign up with those types of companies. Um, I know people that are doing it, but to me, it's, it's a really big risk. Um, and that's why I think more of a traditional distribution agreement model is, is a little bit less of a risk because the terms are clearly defined. You guys uh, hear me all right? Yeah, yeah it was real choppy, but we got you. Can you hear us? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. It just went black on mine again. Plug in my computer. Things might <laughs> slow down a little bit now. So no worries. Well, what's what's next for you? You I mean you keep you've had a nice journey. You've uh, you know built your Amazon business and your agency, and now you're helping people sell uh, in Latin America. What do you see on the horizon for you next? Uh, there's a lot of things that we're already working on. I mean, from the, the Latin America standpoint, we're already working on solutions for uh, Colombia and Brazil, uh, because those are massive markets that we want to get into. Uh, we see a lot of opportunities for 3PL here in Latin America as well. Uh, so that's another thing we have our eye on. Um, the main things that I think are going to continue to become more important to sellers are global expansion, uh, both to markets like Latin America, but to European markets and the Asian markets as well. And we focused a lot there. We've developed our entire global expansion team uh, to help U.S. sellers get into those markets to help European sellers get into the U.S. markets or the Asian markets and Asian sellers, vice versa. Those are the areas where we see the most opportunity right now because of a lot of problems in the U.S., a weakening dollar, um, 
you know, just continuing to be competition uh, on the platform where there's a lot of other marketplaces that are less competitive and a lot more opportunity for brands. So that's what we have our eyes on. Well, man, this has been a fun conversation. I, I yeah. learned a lot. I mean, I love talking about uh, all the different ways that you can grow your business and, and opportunities and definitely expansion is one of those. I know a lot of people listening are fascinated as well. Um, how can they how can they reach out to you, get a conversation started with you, uh, either with AMZ Advisors or Go Avance or all the other things that you're working on? Look, the, so the easiest way is uh, to email me directly. It's mike at amzadvisors.com. You can also go to our website, amzadvisors.com. If you're interested in the global expansion piece, reach out to us there. If you're interested in Latin America, you can go to GoAvance, uh, it's G-O-A-V-A-N-C-E.com or email us at info at GoAvance.com. And you know, we're glad to talk about any of this stuff. It's myself, my partners that are, are responding to all these emails. So you're talking directly to us every time you reach out. Well, we'll make sure that all that, uh, all those links in your email and everything else <clears throat> go into the, the show notes. People can see them. Uh, but Mike, thanks for taking the time today to, to join us. It's been a lot of fun. Dustin, Chris, I appreciate it. It's always fun chatting with you guys. Hopefully uh, we can catch up again at some point in the future and, and let you know what's happening in Latin America more. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks, Mike. And thanks for everybody uh, for tuning in today. We'll be back at this again tomorrow. Have a good day. See ya.